All right, thank you. All right, brothers and sisters, thank you for being here. Going to... Where's my clock? All right, so let us uh, open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Father, for who you are. As we explore this this study, the systematic theology, we go through the the Bible point by point, doctrine by doctrine. Uh, We can get muddled in the details, Father, but all of these things we, we study and we desire to know more of because ultimately we desire to know more about who you are. Who you are as you've revealed yourself through the act of creation and how you've revealed yourself through your son and how you've revealed yourself through your law. How you've called us your image bearers. How you've told us how we are to display that image. We seek to know more about you so that we can understand how we are to live and act in this world and so that we can do those things that please you, Father, especially when it comes to these things that we study today regarding your will, because we know that this is ultimately a part of your unchanging and unfolding plan of what should happen in the world according to your good purpose. We want to be a part of that good purpose. We know that you've called us out of death and into life according to that good purpose, and we seek to live in tune with that, not opposed to that. So please be with us, Father. Please be with us as we study. Please be with those that hear. Please be with me as I speak. Let us not be in error on either side of that. And let everything that we say, everything that we do, everything that we learn, seek to magnify and glorify you. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we ask these things. Amen. So today we are going to look at the what we call the attributes of purpose. Um, mostly. We're going to look at a few other attributes as well. It's a lot to cover. I'm going to try to keep it as concise as I can. Um, But it follows well in what we learned last time we were together, was I taught about the the moral attributes of God, God's love, God's goodness, even God's wrath, those things where God determines, those things that are good and bad that he distinguishes. Clearly, and that those things are distinguished within himself as he is the creator of all things. Now we move on to his attributes of purpose. The first attribute we'll be looking at today is no small subject. It's probably the thing we're going to be dealing with the most today, and that's the will of God. The will of God is a hard subject to research if you've ever done so, mostly because if you were to do a search for the will of God, you will get a very man-centered pool of resources about it. Just doing a quick search on the will of God on Sermon Audio, for instance, led me to sermon titles such as Understanding the Will of God, Living Life in the Will of God, True Success and the Will of God, or Decision Making and the Will of God. Now let me start by saying I'm not criticizing these sermons because of their titles. I've asked that question many times. What is the will of God for me in this situation or in that one? What does God want me to do? How do I work through this situation or this trial that I'm dealing with? We all do this. Sometimes we even do it appropriately. 
But more often, I'd say that what we really seek when we ask these questions is, is some kind of vision of the future. We want a moment of clarity or a snapshot of what the future will bring and what, the, uh, what we're going to encounter if we make a choice one way or another. And if I think we, if we truly sought to know the will of God, we'd probably ask that question a lot less than more. So just two quick things I want to note before we actually start to examine the topic of God's will. The first is something that I've said before the last time we were doing our study in the attributes of God. That was a few years ago. Probably most of you weren't here for that. But when we talk about something like the will of God, it's important to take note and understand that this is a very difficult subject. This is something we're talking about that is, by its definition, beyond us. This is not a topic that's simply too big or hard to handle, or a little bit outside of our perception. We're talking about the entire decreed will of God. There's no way we could ever fully understand that. All that we can do is examine those things about God's will, which are revealed to us through his word, and come to some basic understanding of what it means when we say that God works through his own will. My second note to mention is that God's will is singular. It's hard to examine this subject from any one direction because it is multifaceted. If we look at the truth of it from one angle, we miss a whole set of truths on the other side of it. So when I talk about the will of God, I will be talking about different types or you know, aspects of God's will. But ultimately, it is singular. God is of one mind and one purpose. Job 23 says, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He is unique, and who can turn him, and what his soul desires that he does? For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. The King James Version phrases verse 13 by saying, He is of one mind. And he is indeed of one mind. There is one mind of God. He is of one purpose, singularly determined to carry out his one and holy will. So as we talk about it in different aspects, they're not different wills. It's all the same will of God. We're just examining it from all areas. So the first thing we're going to look at is the counsel of his will, also known as what might be called his decretive will. So to define what the will of God is, we'll first look to Grudem's book, if you have been reading along with us where Wayne Grudem defines God's will as that attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all creation. That means that when we talk about the aseity of God or the self-existence of God, we mean that God exists as an act of his own sheer will. It means that, uh, just as Pastor Bob likes to remind us time and time again, that there's no maverick molecule in the universe, right? That he's being true. Every galaxy, planet, every person, every subatomic particle exists and acts as a result of God's will, and they act in accord with the governing laws and principles of life, the universe, and everything that he has put in place in accordance with his will. This is not something that takes place as a result of some other act outside of God, nor is it a reaction to people, places, or things, or events which exist or take place within his creation. Instead, they take place just as the Lord our God has decreed 
from before any time where there was anything other than him in existence. The primary passage that we have is in Ephesians 1. If you look there, you see in verse 9, where it says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on earth in him, Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory, who works all things according to his purpose after the counsel of his will. This counsel of the will, just as as Jesus said as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's John 17, 5. This counsel is the eternal counsel of Father, Son, and Spirit as they self-existed in eternity past where the perfect love of the Godhead was displayed and experienced solely within the Holy Trinity alone. It's within that perfect communion where God determined within himself to display his glory through the act of creation. And then to fully demonstrate that glory to us through his creation, through the person and work of the Son, Jesus Christ. These determinations we understand to be the decree of God. Much like a sovereign monarch will will, like a king or a queen, will make their commands known to their subjects through a royal decree, which would often be written down on scrolls and they would be read aloud to the public or they would be posted somewhere public for all to read so that everybody would know what the king or queen desired. God, too, has decreed that all things which are taking place throughout history are taking place according to his will. That's why some refer to this as the decretive will of God. It's all those things that God has determined he would do and now does because in eternity past he decreed that these things would happen so as to display his glory. Do we have any questions at this point? No, we're good. In the Second Baptist, uh, London Baptist Confession, we read about the decrees this way. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside of himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes, On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in decreeing, directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. So when we talk about this decreed will of God, we're talking about everything. Every moment in time, everything that existed that has existed since God created time, created space, created creation, created the world, created you, created your parents, everything from the moment creation started to the moment creation ends, and even continuing into eternity past, eternity future. 
All things that are going to take place are going to take place exactly as God wills it to happen. Because he has already decreed and declared that it will take place. Next, we're going to look at the freedom of God's will. And as I said, there's, there's ways to look at types, and we're, we're going to look at the aspects of God's will, because I think that the types become far more confusing. So I think if you simply look at the, the qualities or the aspects of God's will, I think it makes a lot more sense. So we've seen that God's will is part of his, his eternal determination to do those things that please him. Now we talk about the freedom in God's will. Here we acknowledge that God's freedom to carry out, we acknowledge his freedom to carry out his will. We might also see this in a, as an extension of his sovereignty. Not only is God free in his ability to do the act of creating, meaning there's no physical restraints on God's will, there's no borders or boundaries, but we also mean that there's no constraints on his will when it comes to his authority. He doesn't have to take counsel with another, he does, uh, nor does he have to concern himself with overstepping his authority by acting in one way or another. You know, this past week I took a, a class, I'm training to be a, a security guard, I'm trying to get a security guard job. And I took, you know, three days of class, 24 hours of class, and most of those hours were spent on recognizing what authority I have as a security guard and what authority I do not have. When I have the freedom to act, to deal with a certain situation, and when I have to restrain myself, to what degree can I act, and when do I have to restrain myself? To what governing authorities do I answer to if I abuse my power or authority? There's no such thing with God. There's no eight-hour exercising your divine authority class. God doesn't worry about that. God has the free, self-appointed authority to act any way he pleases within his creation, and more so, he has the power and ability to work out his will as well. In Psalm 135, we read, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth in the seas, and in all depths. One more thing that is a bit more cliche at this point than anything that it would be actually interesting, but for the sake of being clear and thorough, it's important because it, it's important because it often comes up, is does God have the freedom to, say, create a rock he can't lift? Does God have the freedom to create something that would be illogical, like a four-sided triangle or something like that. It's things I, that I've heard in the past. The, the short answer is no. God is free in that God is perfect and God is unchangeable. We, we call it the immutability of God. Therefore, God truly has the freedom to act perfectly He's under no constraints to act illogically or in something that's contradictory to his nature. To do something that would prevent him from being perfect would be to contradict his nature. Therefore, God does not act in certain ways. He displays his perfection at all times. His perfection in creating the universe with order, creating the universe with his divine authority. So no, he does not act in certain ways that 
that will allow him to act contradictory to his nature, his character, or uh, illogically. Any questions at this point? We're doing good? Yes, brother. So to avoid uh, hyper-Calvinism or something like that, where God's, you know, God's will is going to take place, therefore I don't have to worry about it. Well, because um, we're going to talk about a little bit more about that in, a, in about a minute, but essentially it, it's because God has not revealed his decrees to us, not in their entirety. There are certain things that God has revealed to us and many, many, many things that God has kept secret. Therefore, we act not in accordance with what we expect or think or hope God will do in the future. We do in accordance with what God has revealed for us to do in this time here and now. Okay? Does that answer your question? Anyone else? Yes, brother. We're going to deal with that specifically. Just give me a couple minutes. All right? All right. Anything else? Nobody? No more other hands? Okay. Yeah, so we'll deal with that in a minute. Um, yeah, just a couple, couple topics later. So now let's get into the power of his will. This is also known as his omnipotence, right? So if we look at the omnipotence of God, which is explored in Grudem's book as a completely separate attribute, but they are so closely linked, and because we're such so limited on time, I think it helps us to simply look at it in terms of his will. There we read that God's omnipotence means that God is free, is able to do all of his holy will. If we look at um, the Babylonian king of Nebuchadnezzar, at one point he was considered essentially the ruler of the entire world. There was nothing that was, wasn't within his grasp. He had conquered all of the, the kingdoms and lands uh, of Assyria and Babylon and all the surrounding areas over there. And then we got in the prophecy of Daniel, we get an account which was prophesied by Daniel where he warned Nebuchadnezzar that all of his power would be taken away from him and that he would be brought low to the point of even living and acting like a beast or a wild animal. And in Daniel 4, we see that actually come to pass. We see Nebuchadnezzar at the height of his power have it all stripped away from him. I and mean, he's cast out into the forest where he lives in the, in the wild as a beast. He loses all of his sense, all of his reason. And then at the very end, there's this flash where all of his reason comes back to him. And there's this wonderful moment where he glorifies God. So if we look at Daniel 4 real quick, we'll see it. We'll start in verse 31 where it's actually his judgment comes upon him. You know, he's, he's declaring all the, the things of Babylon are his, that he's built this great kingdom up. And then we read in verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And in that moment, he lost all his sense, all his reason, and he ran out into the forest to live like a beast. And then at the end of that, we read in verse 34, this, this declaration that, that King Nebuchadnezzar, he has this vision of God 
where he, he, he praises the Lord God and he sees him for truly, truly is. And he declares in verse 34, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures for generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's power when you can take the most powerful man in the world and by one word remove every bit of power that he has, then you can give his sense back to him. And not only that, take somebody that had no regard for God and transform him into somebody who sees you for the glorious being that you are, where even he will declare your glory and declare your sovereignty and declare your rule and to declare your power. That's power. That's what God has. That's who he is. That's his will being effective which actually takes us to our next topic, the effectiveness of his will, or what some people call the efficacious will. This may seem a bit redundant, but it does help to note this one. It's, it's a subtle difference, but if you or I come to a determination that we should do something or something must be done, and even if we possess the power to carry that action out, there's no certainty that we're going to accomplish the task. There's always those, what we call the unforeseen circumstances, those things which exist outside of us that can affect our ability to do something that we were determined to do. There's no such obstacle with God. There's no such thing as an unforeseeable obstacle or an unknowable external force that can hinder or disrupt the will of God. And because God declares these things according to his good pleasure before he even acts in creation, and because we have just seen that he absolutely has the sovereign power to act throughout his creation, then we understand that God's will is efficacious and it is certain. Nothing will stop it. Nothing will hinder it. It is immutable. It is unchangeable. Anything that God wills, he has the power to carry out, and because it's happening through his power, it will come to take place. In Isaiah 55, we read, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering in the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth, and it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. When God says something, it gets done. When God does something, there's no way it can be undone. And we're still good. Everybody's comfortable on this subject. Okay. Well, we're going to start getting into some of those questions you guys had. Yes, Bob.
Yeah, amen. I mean, any, any enemy we could possibly name answers to God, you know? You, you take, you know, the, the greatest enemy that we, we consider facing, you know, either be it Satan, you know? Job 2 tells us Satan answers directly to God. He acts in, in accordance with God's purpose and will, and he does nothing that God does not appoint him to do or allow him to do. Is our greatest enemy death? Well, we know that the keys to death in Hades have been handed over, and there is... They, they have no sway over us. That, that they, they too have been defeated. Yes, Bob? Um, yeah, that kind of leads me right into my next point, which we were going to talk about the difference between what you were asking about before, the, the revealed will and the secret will, right? How do we know what God's will is? How do we understand God's will? What are we supposed to do when we consider God's will? If we open up, uh, if we look, just well, I'll just look, read the verse. In Deuteronomy 29... Verse 29, we read, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. That coming from Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Being told that that is God's revealed will, that these are the things that belong to us, those things that are revealed to us in his word are those things which God wants us to know. Everything else is secret, and those things belong to God. If you look back on history from this moment in time, and now this moment, and now this moment, everywhere back, you already see the decree of God as it worked itself out so far. Looking forward, you can look a million years, 200,000 years, 20 years, five minutes or four seconds from this moment, you have no idea what's about to take place other than what God has revealed to us in his word. There's no guarantee that you are, you know, I could drop dead of a heart attack right now, right? I hope I don't, but I could. If so, glory be to God, because it was his will that it be done. A lot of people want to concern themselves with the future as we talked about in the beginning what's God's will for me in my life what is God's how do I know that I'm choosing the right things to do in accordance with God's will people who take the you know the the unhealthy path or the sinful path will turn to horoscopes and they'll go to fortune tellers and mediums because they're dying to know what the future holds for them it's not for you to know what the future holds not 10 years in your life, not five seconds in your life, at no point in your life. You're not meant to know your death. You're meant to know nothing other than ultimately God's plan for you is for you to live in eternity with him and his son in glory, perfected, 
holy, righteous, blameless, loving him, knowing him, where he will truly reveal himself to you forever. That's God's ultimate purpose. We have no idea when that's going to happen, but we know it's going to happen because God has revealed that to us. The secret things are not for us. So therefore, we concern ourselves with the things that God has revealed to us in his word. Essentially, things concerning his son, his law, and salvation. Psalm 98, we read, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Concerning God's law, which is God's will for us. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. How do we know God's will? If he hasn't revealed it, he has revealed his will for how we are to live in this world. Again, in Matthew 12, in stretching out his hand, Jesus towards his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Once again, in John 8, I have many things to speak, to speak to and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I, have no, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. We are to live in accordance with God's law. We're to obey his commandments. We're to be faithful. We're not going to be faithful. We're still sinners. But we should still seek to live righteously, to do those things that will please him, to live in obedience, to repent, to pray, to hope, to trust. Those are the things that God has called us to. All the things of the world we don't have to concern ourselves with. James tells us that in James 4. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. John MacArthur had a great point about this. He said, as long as you're living within accordance of God's, God's law, if you're seeking to be obedient, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, trusting in the gospel, trusting in your salvation, then as long as God hasn't prevented you from doing it, you have freedom to do it. You're not, a, you're not promised success or hope in anything that you want to do in this world but if you're wondering if you should marry this person or that person, as long as you're seeking to find somebody that's a godly partner, as God has entrusted to us, then you're free to marry whomever you wish. If you want to, wondering if this job or that job is, is right for you, as long as you're seeking to do your work as an honest man that seeks to serve as he serves unto the Lord, you're free to choose any job you want. Which leads me into my 
well, not the last part, but the last part about the topic of God's will, which is his communicable will. Right? We understand this attribute of God to be a communicable attribute, which means that God's will is demonstrated in us as image bearers of God. We have desires, we have wants, we have hopes, we have will. The love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, these are all attributes we share with him in, as well as his will. I don't by any means suggest that this will is free. That's a different subject. We could be here for days. But God has clearly created us with hearts and minds that experience desire. The question is, are our desires self-seeking or self-gratifying? Or are our desires righteous and truly in tune with those things that God desires and which would be pleasing to him? Philippians 2, we read, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's not a bad thing to want. Just make sure you want what the Lord wants for you. Now to your point, brother, uh, about good and evil. Does God will evil? Right? It's a fair question. Well, evil is a part of God's decree. God makes allowance for evil. God uses evil, but he is not the author of evil. We don't allow that to be said about God. God is not the author of evil. He's not the father of evil. He does not create evil. God allows his creation to act in evil ways so that he can carry out his good purposes. And that you see over and over and over again in the Bible. We all know the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. They actually wanted to kill him. But instead, they, they captured him. They sold him off into slavery. He went off to Egypt, where then he was accused of, of sexually assaulting Potiphar's wife. He was sent to prison. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he interprets a dream, and he becomes the second in command under the Pharaoh in Egypt. And then his brothers come to him, and they, he, he, he reconciles with his brothers. And at the very end, in Genesis 50, 20, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God allowed Joseph's brothers to act evil so that people could be saved, so that people would live, so that Joseph would be exactly where he wanted him to be in exactly the right circumstances. We also see that on sort of a slightly slanted you know, negative skew, when you look at Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 10, in verse 5, we read, Woe to Assyria, this is God speaking, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation, and commission it against my people of my fury to capture booty and seize plunder, and to trample them down like mud in the streets." Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. 
So here we say that Assyrians coming down against Israel, rising up against Israel, is God's judgment against Israel. That's his purpose. That's his plan. He's doing something that's righteous. He's declaring justice. The Assyrians don't think they're doing that. They're doing it to plunder. They're doing it for their own purposes, to destroy and to cut off many nations. They're doing it to seek out their own evil intents. God means this for good, ultimately. The ultimate culmination we see in Acts chapter 4, where we read, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So when we see Pontius Pilate declaring that Jesus would be scourged and crucified, and all the Israelites yelling out, crucify him, and the Gentiles taking pleasure in crucifying Jesus Christ, and Herod allowing it to to happen, all of those evil horrible, monstrous things are taking place because God decreed it would happen. And it's a wonderful thing that that happened. We're told in Isaiah that it pleased God to crush Jesus because through that act, we might be saved and his mercy and his glory would be put on display. And it works out for us as well. Romans 8, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. If you are in Christ, all things are working together for good. As Bob said, what happens if you you get cancer or some horrible disease, right? As I've told you guys many times, since I've become a Christian, things haven't exactly worked out for me in the world. You know, I developed multiple sclerosis. You know, I lost one job. I struggled to find another job. Now I'm struggling to find another job. Might lose my apartment. It is what it is. But God's working these things out for me. Because through this, his mercy, his grace, his glory, his love for me will be demonstrated through Jesus Christ and through salvation. Right? I'm not saying I need to be happy about those things because I don't fully understand how they're working out. But I know what the ultimate purpose of them is. And if you guys are dealing with those things, you can put your ultimate hope in in the purpose of Jesus Christ as well. So, any other questions about the will of God before we move on? Yes, Frank. Um, I got to be honest. I don't, what is the what is the what is divine simplicity, Bob? The doctrine of divine simplicity. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean. There's a I mean, like I said, I haven't, I, for some reason I haven't heard that term to, to describe it before. But I mean, as we've said in the study of his attributes, God is manifold in his attributes. 
You know, he is the one being of God. We distinguish these attributes because God sort of distinguishes them, them for us through his word. He refers to himself as love. He refers to himself as, as tender. He refers to himself as merciful and gracious. So we, we understand those things are, are the will of God. They're, they are the, the, the attributes of God. So we attribute those things to God. Um, no, well, he is all those things in one being, but like I said, he is distinguishing them. You know, for the Lord is, the God is loving kindness. You know, he, you know, his loving kindness endures forever. Those are things he tells us about himself. So we can, we can absolutely state those things as absolute truth because God has stated them plainly for us. Yes, Bob. Amen. And even specifically to this point, too, as we were talking about the communicable attributes, God's love, mercy, his grace, his will is all demonstrated in you as well. But we would never characterize you as all will or all love or anything like that. You, those are aspects of you that make you who you are. So these are the, as- the attributes of God that, that make him who he is. So Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Yes, Tom. Uh, well, just, you know, same thing we've, we've always said, that, that, that God is not doing these things for evil purposes. That whenever we see bad things happen, it's a result of our sin in the world. God has done the greatest thing to combat sin, which he sent his son Jesus Christ to suffer and die for us. And now he sends his gospel out into the world so that those who hear that message and believe in his son Jesus Christ do not perish. All the things that we hear about with abortion, the Holocaust, these are all horrible, evil things, but they are all temporal, right? This is not, these are not eternal things we're talking about. God has done the greatest thing that could ever be done to allow his son to suffer and die and be raised again so that he could be the first fruits of all that believe in him. That's the greatest thing God could ever do, and that's what he does. Yes, Mercy. He is sovereign over it all. But like I said, whenever we see an evil act, just as Joseph said, they mean these things for evil. God has his good purpose in it. And good, and like I said, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're talking about the revealed will of God. It might be hard if this book ended at Jude, but we have Revelation. 
we're told how it all works out at the end, how the new heavens and the new earth come. Yeah. Yeah, but when, but when God uses evil, he's using it for good purposes. He's using it to work out his good will and intentions. Yes, Bob? Yeah, I mean, like I say, it's it's not it's not easy to understand, but the Bible makes it very clear that God is not the author of sin. So we have no problem declaring that God is good, that his intents are good, his purposes are good, and every way in which he acts is good, even though evil exists. So
but uh, let's move on because I got a few more uh, things to get through. These are going to be pretty quick. These are what we call the summary attributes. These are these are all you know other qualities of God's attributes that don't really fit easily into any one category. But these are the last of the attributes we're going to look at briefly. The first being that of God's perfection. You know, once again, if we read from Grudem, he labels God's perfection as God's perfection means that God completely possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no part of any quality that would be desirable for him. And I'm going to put this together with God's um, beauty, where he says that God's beauty is that attribute of God whereby he is the sum of all desirable qualities. Grudem simply, you know, those are very similar uh, attributes, but God, Grudem distinguishes them, seeing as how you know one is is where God doesn't lack any good qualities, and the other one being His beauty, where He is the sum of all fine and good qualities. We too are called to be perfect. Matthew five four eight. Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to seek to be beautiful, to not lack any fine qualities. In Psalm 27, 4, talking about God's beauty, we read, One thing I have asked for from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. As we seek to understand and know Christ more, we will behold the beauty of God. Because his, the fullness of God is displayed in Jesus Christ. It's there where we see pure righteousness, pure holiness, pure love, pure mercy, pure compassion. And then the final attribute is that of God's blessedness. Which we also understand to be the joy of God. Miriam says God's... What did you just do? Grudem says that God's blessedness means that God delights fully in himself and in all that reflects his character. Piper actually has a wonderful series of, of uh, sermons on this where he talks about the, the, the pleasures of God. Where he talks about God being pleased in himself. He's pleased by his glory, by his freedom, by his son, by the faith and hope in his people and acts of righteousness as displayed in his image bearers. Anything that is of God or by God or anything that is displaying the character of God is pleasing to him. He is pleased in himself. That's the blessedness of God. You hear over and over and over again, blessed be the Lord throughout Scripture. In 1 Kings we read, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. Blessed, pleased is the Lord our God. Any questions on those things? No? Yes, I mean... How, well, actually, we're going to get to that right now because we're getting into application, right? So, you know, the application is to be like Christ, right? That's the best display of perfection that we have. 
through his revealed will, as we read about in the scripture, we learn more and more about Christ, and we are called to be more and more like Christ. We're seek, we seek to be sanctified, to be set further and further apart, further and further outside of this world, not, not corrupted by the things of the world, to desire things that are more and more of, of God's kingdom. Right? We call those the communicable attributes of God, as we've already seen a few times tonight, because they are attributes which are displayed within us, his image bearers. Therefore, we should prayerfully seek to be Christ-like, to have a mind and heart that would will as Christ would will, to humbly submit to God and to do those things that please him. The Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, pray in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If we display any power or authority, or those things which God gives us authority, should be exercised with godly wisdom as Christ would exercise them. Because as we know, that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And when we seek to recognize things such as beauty or blessings or perfection, that we don't use surface-level evidence to define these things. We don't look at someone's looks to define beauty. We look at their heart. We look at how much they love God and how, how much God would be pleased with this person in their life. That's how we define beauty. For somebody to be perfect or blessed. And finally, we seek to glorify God. We remember that that is why he created us in his image. That's why he works within us. That's why the very reason why he saved us, so that he would get the glory, and that he and he alone would be praised. I'll read one more time from Ephesians 1. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That's what we hope in. That as we are more Christ-like, as we seek to, to live according to his purpose, that we would be to the praise of his glory, that he would be glorified in our lives. Do I have any questions? That pretty much wraps it up. No? Okay, Rick, can you hand out the tests? We're going to take a pop quiz. Make sure you guys know all about God's will, His blessing, His beautifulness. No? All right. Brother Tony, could you pray, please? Lead us out in prayer. Yeah.